Well, church, please uh, open up your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 11. Uh, Next week, we will be stepping out of Romans to start our Advent uh, sermon series. Uh, But today, we recognize is actually the first day of Advent. And uh, if you've noticed, the, the trailer next door has been moved. Maybe the first Christmas miracle. We've got like 20 more parking spots. So invite your friends and family this holiday season. We'd love to have them here, and there are more spots to park. Uh, So praise God for that. But today we come to the conclusion of Romans 11. And in the conclusion of Romans 11, we are shown what the right response is to learning good theology and doctrine. The Apostle Paul, throughout these 11 glorious chapters, has laid out for us some amazing truths about our great God. We have learned that all of humanity, both Jews and Gentiles, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Paul has prosecuted both the religious and irreligious and found us all to be guilty before God and in our unrighteousness, enemies of his. But thanks be to God, we've also learned that we who were condemned before God can now be justified by God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We have learned that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and that God in his providence will sovereignly work all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We've learned that God has and will always have a people for himself who are called and chosen and kept by grace through faith. We've seen in the last couple of weeks how God's righteousness is getting out to all people, both Jews and Gentiles, and how God has been doing this in an unexpected and surprising way. And how we who were once not a part of God's people have now been grafted into God's people through Jesus Christ our Lord. And what we will see now this morning is that Paul's response to all this glorious truth is what our response must be as well. And that response is worship. Worship. This is how you can measure if what you are learning about God is true and right and whether or not you are going about it in a healthy way. Does it cultivate in you a greater desire to worship God? Does it cultivate in you a greater desire to worship God? If you are at home reading your Bible or reading a book about God or listening to a podcast or some other mode of learning about God, if your response is not to worship God, and if you are not in more awe of Him and you don't have a greater desire to give Him praise for who He is and what He has done, you've got to at least question if what you are taking in is true or whether or not what you are taking in, if you are taking it in with a right attitude, with humility, and with faith. A proper study of God should not puff up your pride. It should not make you feel like you've got him all figured out. It should humble you. It should leave you in awe of him and cause you to worship. That's how we see Paul wrap up Romans 11. 
And so if your reading and studying of Romans 1 through 11 is not resulting in you being more in awe of God with a greater desire to worship Him, then I'd encourage you to go back, humble yourself, read it again. Go back, humble yourself, read it again. Go back, humble yourself, read it again until what pours forth out of your heart is what we see in Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Church, verse 36 is really the verse we will focus in on this morning. Because it's not often that you come across a single verse that encapsulates and describes who God is and how and why he works in his world. But verse 36 is it. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Oh, what joy and what peace comes to us when we are able to read through these glorious truths of Romans 1 through 11 and we are brought to our knees and with our eyes and our hands lifted up to heaven, we are able to say like the Apostle Paul, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Let's pray and let's ask the Lord's help as we look at his word. Father God, you have revealed yourself to us in your word. And all throughout your word, you direct our attention to your son, Jesus. Give light to us now as we hear your word proclaimed, that we may open our hearts to him and long for his coming in glory that we might serve him with great joy, that we might enjoy him with great peace. Please help me as I preach, and please help us as we hear and receive your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, look with me at verse 36. We'll go back to the preceding verses here in a moment, but let's start with the end, verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I'll start by asking us some questions about verse 36. What does it mean that from him are all things? Well, this means that God is the source from which all things come. What does it mean that Through him are all things. Well, this means that God is the mighty sustainer and worker of all things, that all things depend on him. He is the means by which all things happen. Through him are all things. And then what does it mean that to him are all things? Well, this means that he is the goal and the purpose towards which everything is moving. His glory is the end of all things. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory 
forever. Well, let's see how this plays out at these last verses of Romans 11. Look with me now at Romans 11, verse 25. Romans 11, 25. It says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Paul has just warned Gentile believers to not become prideful over God grafting them into the olive tree, the people of God. And now he shows us that this outworking of his righteousness coming to both Jews and Gentiles, it, the, the way that this is all played out, this is all from God. This was a mystery, how and when God would welcome the Gentiles into the kingdom, but it was not a mystery to God. But now God has revealed it through Christ and his church. Paul typically uses this word mystery not in a way like this is some unsolved mystery that we still need to investigate, but Paul typically uses this word mystery to describe something that was prophesied about in the Old Testament and has now been revealed in the New. This plan of God to bring righteousness to Jews and Gentiles, it has not changed and it was always part of God's sovereign plan for all of life and salvation are from God. But because of the unbelief of many of the Jewish people, a partial hardening had come upon Israel until the full number of a multitude of Gentiles have come into the kingdom. And then there will be a great revival amongst the Jewish people of coming to faith in Christ. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. These were things that we taught through and talked about some last week. And so if you missed last week, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to the sermon as we're now continuing uh, the Apostle Paul's teaching of Romans 11. But he says that all Israel will be saved, and I do want to note that there has been some disagreement throughout the church history and, and throughout amongst Christians as to what all Israel will be saved means. Some would see that all Israel being saved is Paul referring to the people of God throughout history, consisting of both Jews and Gentiles who are saved. Some would understand all Israel being saved as referring to the remnant of Jews throughout history that come to faith in Christ and are saved. And then others would say that this is referring to the generation of Jews in the future that experience this revival and come to faith in Christ. Now, I would lean towards that third option as to what this means, all Israel will be saved. While I do believe in Galatians 6, Paul refers to believing Jews and Gentiles as making up the true Israel of God. I believe here in Romans 11, though, in the context, he's been using Israel in reference to ethnic Israel, and therefore I think it'd be unlikely that he all of a sudden switches it and uses it to refer to the church here in Romans 11. But instead, I believe all Israel being saved is the Apostle Paul referring to this future time, this coming point in the future where there will be a revival amongst the Jewish people and that the majority of Jews in that end time generation will come to faith in Christ. However, not every single individual, even in that revival generation, will be saved. Most scholars agree that when the Apostle Paul uses the word all, 
that he's not referring to every single individual without exception. Or when the New Testament writers refer to the world, they're not necessarily referring to every single individual without exception. Salvation comes from God, but it comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for both the Gentiles and the Jews. And there will be a future generation of Jewish people where revival breaks out and we see the majority of them come to faith in Christ. We can praise God that life and salvation come from Him. We can praise God that we who put our faith in Christ are considered to be now among the fullness of the Gentiles. I mean, isn't that a cool thing to be a part of the fullness of the Gentiles, welcomed into the kingdom of God? And we currently live in a time where the fullness of the Gentiles has not yet been reached. God's still filling up the kingdom with Gentile believers. That number has not yet been, been made or reached where God has said, all right, now it's time to move this, continue to move this thing forward. And therefore, since the fullness of the Gentiles has not yet been reached, what that means for us is that we can go now into our world with compassion and confidence and proclaim the good news that life and salvation are from God, through God, and for God. He's still filling up the kingdom with Gentile believers. This should empower and encourage our evangelism. This plan of salvation that God will accomplish in his world, it's, it's from him, right? It's from him. It's his idea. And it is accomplished through him, right? For from him and through him and to him, through him, meaning that it depends upon him, which is good news for us because if this was just from us or from God and that was to be through us, I mean, I, I, think, I can think of plenty of things I've received, good gifts I've received, that I've totally just made a mess of. But thanks be to God, the plan of salvation that God will accomplish in his world, it is from him, and it will be accomplished through him. Look with me now at verse 28. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Paul's trying here to guard against any Gentile Christians having hatred or anger towards Jewish people, which was even more tempting to fall into in the first century because some of the Jews were persecuting the early church. And Paul says, hey, I know they seem like they are enemies of the gospel right now, but they need Jesus just like the rest of the world needs Jesus. Don't give up on them. God's not done with them. And why is that? Well, he then directs us to something about the character of God in verse 29. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. This means that there are no takebacks with God. This is why it is not cool to give someone a gift at Christmas and then take it back. That would not be honoring the Lord and the way he gives gifts. Like maybe, you know, you gave someone a gift and you, you realized it was maybe too good of a gift to give them. Or maybe after opening what they gave you, you realized this was a bit lopsided of an exchange. 
You gave them jewelry, they gave you a Chia pet, and now all of a sudden you're questioning whether or not this was a good idea. Don't go take back the good gift you gave. That's not a proper way to celebrate the arrival of Jesus because there are no take backs with God. God doesn't give a promise and then take it back. No, God is a promise keeper. God does not give himself as the deliverer and then fail to deliver. God does not give himself as the savior and then fail to save anyone. God does not promise to take away his people's sins and then not follow through because actually you all are a bit more sinful and stubborn than he realized. But we wrongly think, surely God will take back the promises he's given to me in Romans 8 and elsewhere in Scripture. I mean, can it really be that nothing will separate me from the love of God? Yes. Because it is through Jesus Christ that we are connected to the love of God. And it is through Jesus Christ, that we now have no condemnation. Our life and salvation are from God, but they are also through God. It is through Christ that we are connected to these spiritual blessings. It is through Jesus Christ that we have eternal life, and that starts right now. You see, the reason that God does not take back his promises to you is because it is through Christ that you experience every blessing from God. And therefore, you can be assured of God's promises for you because the Father has eternally loved the Son and you are in Him. When we think that our life and salvation are sustained through us or that they ultimately depend upon us, oh, we miss out on the joy and the peace of knowing and being assured that God does not take back his promises to those who are in Christ. Your life and salvation are way more about Christ than they are about you. And I was reminded of a great example and illustration of this from 2 Samuel chapter 9. I won't have you turn there this morning. I'll attempt to summarize it for you and you can read about it later. Because I believe that we can very much relate to a guy named Mephibosheth. After Saul and Jonathan had been killed in battle, after David becomes king and has victories of his own, later on he remembers his love for his friend Jonathan. And in 2 Samuel 9 verse 1, it says, And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness? For Jonathan's sake. You see, a lot of kings, when they take power, they actually go and kill all the former king's family so that no one is plotting any sort of revenge or uprising against the new king. But that's not why David is asking if there is anyone left in the house of Saul. David wants to know if anyone's left so that he can show them kindness for Jonathan's sake. You see, David had a deep love for his friend Jonathan. And he's about to pour out some blessings on Mephibosheth for Jonathan's sake. 
The reason you don't hear him talked about much is because everyone is very afraid to try to pronounce his name. And so they find Mephibosheth, and he was lame in both feet, had a pretty significant disability, unable to come in his own strength. David's servants find Mephibosheth and they bring him to David. He's terrified. He falls at David's feet thinking, surely he's going to be executed. Surely his family lineage has made him an enemy of the king. And in 2 Samuel 9, verse 7, it says, And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. You see, these promises that God makes to us believers in Romans are sometimes too great for us to believe. Like, they're they're just too big. They're too wonderful. It's really difficult to receive them and enjoy them. I mean, God has shown us our sin. We have seen that we were enemies of God, deserving of execution because we were born in the family line of Adam who had committed cosmic treason against God. And yet, because Jesus Christ was sent from the Father and lived and suffered and died and was raised, because he was victorious where the first Adam failed, now through him, the Father calls us and says, Do not fear for I will show you kindness for the sake of my son. And I will restore you. And you shall eat at my table always. The God who knew his people from both Jewish and Gentile descent, who knew the level of disobedience that was in our hearts, who who knew it better than even we realize it ourselves, he decided through Christ to call a people to himself, to show them mercy, to take away their sins through Christ and for Christ. Look now at verse 30. Romans 11, verse 30. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Again, when Paul uses all, he's not referring to every single individual without exception, but he's referring to Jews and Gentiles here, to all. Salvation has come to humanity from God and through God. It came by him first, consigning all peoples to disobedience, meaning imprisoning them to disobedience giving us over, like we've talked in Romans, giving us over to our sinful desires so that we would become enslaved to these desires. Why would he do that? Well, so that we would see our need for a Savior and look to the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, so that we might be freed from our enslavement to sin. Paul, when writing to the Galatians in Galatians 3, verse 22 He says, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. 
You see, sin was not just something we committed. It was something we were under, right? The scripture and the word imprisoned everything under sin. But the good news is that the word, capital W, the incarnate word, has come that God might show mercy to all who believe, to all who trust in his name. Humanity has been imprisoned and enslaved by sin, but through Christ we can now be freed. Through Christ we can now receive mercy. And oh, many of us, we don't have a problem seeing that life and salvation come from God, but we live in such a way that life and salvation now depend upon us. We really struggle to believe that life and salvation are to be lived now through God. But you see, our salvation is from God, and it is also sustained through God. Paul, in writing to the Philippians, Philippians 2, verse 13, he writes, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Peter, in 1 Peter 1, verse 5, says, Who by God's power are being guarded through faith, guarded through faith by God's power for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God loves and gifts and calls and saves and strengthens his people through Christ. What our lives and salvation depend upon is not our own strength, but the strength of Christ. We do not have to hold all things together, for Christ already has that job. In Colossians 1, 17, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In him all things hold together. In him we are held together. In him this church is held together. We are being guarded in this life through faith, by God's power, for a glorious day that is coming. We are like the lame Mephibosheth, welcomed to God's table for the sake of another. And oh, doesn't this cause our hearts to want to worship God? Look now at verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. This is saying our God is wealthy and our God is wise. Our God is wealthy. He has all the resources in the world, and our God is wise. He has all the knowledge in the world and knows how to use it, knows how to work things well and wisely and good and righteously. Our God is wealthy, and our God is wise, and there is a depth to his wealth and wisdom that we cannot fully comprehend. Sitting in front of the doctrines that have been laid out for us from Romans 1 through 11, it's like sitting at the beach and staring out at the ocean. I mean, you can sit on the edge of the water and look out and see the vastness that is before you, and you can be in all of it. And you can see some things on the surface that you can describe and observe and see what's going on. But you also are very aware when you sit and look at the ocean of how much of it you can't see and how much of it you don't know. 
I can look at the ocean while I'm talking to you on the phone sitting back in Indiana, and I can tell you how great it is. But I can't see exactly what all is happening in the deepest parts of the ocean at the bottom of the ocean floor. I can see it's deep, but I can't describe to you perfectly the bottom of the ocean. And so it is with the wisdom and knowledge of God. Oh, they are vast. They are unmatched. There is a depth to them that only God knows all of it. He has shown us what we need to know of him and his world, but he has not shown us all that there is to know of him and his world. Paul goes on to say, How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. Essentially, his ways are beyond and past, comprehensively finding out. Verse 34, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. No one has fully known the mind of the Lord. And therefore, who are we to try to be his counselor? We have never given him a gift that he hadn't first given to us. And therefore, God does not owe us anything. Like we've been talking about all throughout these last couple of chapters, this just crushes any sense of entitlement we can be prone to. And this truth here should also help us repent of the anger and the despair that some of us find ourselves in this morning. Many Christians are angry and despairing Because they think they know better than the Lord. They want to be his counselor and his advisor. And they are disappointed that he has not met their expectations or done things in the way they think it should have been done. Maybe God did not do what you wanted him to do. Or maybe he did what you wanted him to do, but he did not do it in the way you wanted him to do it. Or maybe he did what you wanted him to do the way you wanted him to do it, but he didn't do it when you thought it should have been done. And you're not mad. Well, some of you might be mad, but you might think you're not mad. You're just disappointed with him. He should have met with you first and received some of your wise counsel, and maybe this could have played out better. He could have asked for your advice. Have you come across people like this? Impossible to please. Even if you try your best to cater to what they want, when they want, even if you try your best to cater what they want in the way they want, you will most likely be met with disappointing them of when it should have been done. Well, it should have been a week earlier. Should have been two days sooner. Should have been an hour earlier than you did it. Now listen, if you know people like this, pray for them. 
Because what's most serious about the state of their heart is that they probably have that same sort of attitude towards God. They wrongly think that they should be his counselor. And be warned, if that's you this morning, you are setting yourself up for misery and anger and despair because God does not need a counselor. That job has never been needed. And you're going to keep getting angrier and angrier and despair more and more every time you apply for that job and get turned down because that position does not exist. You keep applying for it, and God's like, yeah, that's not an open position. That's, I'm not looking for that from you. All things are not from him and through him and to him once he checks in with you to see if that's okay. You do not know better than God. And God does not owe you anything. As the humbled king Nebuchadnezzar learned and proclaimed in Daniel chapter 4. Daniel 4 verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Now there's a warning there for us. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. No one can legitimately say, what have you done? Why have you done it this way, God? Or criticize his timing when he does something. Because we don't know the depths of his wisdom and knowledge. But one thing we do know is that if everything is from him and through him and to him, then God must do what he does in the way he does it and when he does it in order to bring the most glory to himself. And we know that, church. And so ultimately, it's not really about you. Now, when you are living for the glory of God and in communion with him, it's going to be good for you. There's going to be a lot of joy for you. There's going to be a lot of restoration and health in your life. It's going to be good. But listen, it's not ultimately about you. You will experience the most joy when you are bringing God the most glory. But know this. It, it is not ultimately about you. Now, what it am I referring to? Well, you know that it. You know what I'm talking about. That thing, that situation, everyone has it, that struggle, whatever that is, that you, whatever that it thing is in your life this morning, we all walked in this morning a bit concerned about an it today. Now listen, it is not ultimately for you or about you. 
but we struggle with thinking that it is all about us. And that's why we ask God and are frustrated with God, God, how does this thing, how does it make my life any better? And that's a question that comes from thinking that all things come from him and through him and they're for us. To us be the glory forever. Don't amen that. A better question to ask would be, how does this thing, this situation, this trial, this season, how is it going to increase the worship of God in my life and in his world? That's the question we must ask. When persecution happens, when the economy collapses, when trials come, when sickness and disease and cancer come upon us, what if we asked, I wonder how this is going to increase the worship of God in my life and in his world? Because that is where this is all headed. Like, what if we prayed, oh, Lord, may this, whatever this thing is for you this morning, may this increase my worship of you. May this cause those around me to worship you with their entire lives. Now, I know that kind of prayer seems a little crazy, but that's what someone would ask if they really believed that all things are from him, through him, and to him. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Church, do we really believe that from him and through him and to him are all things? Do we believe that God is the source from which all things come? Do we believe that God is the mighty sustainer of all things and that all things depend upon him and all things are held together through him? Do we believe that God is the goal and the purpose towards which all things are moving towards? All things are for him. Are you struggling this morning thinking that it is all about you? And you're fluctuating between anger and despair as God is showing you that it is actually all about Him. And as we walk, as we conclude Romans 11 this morning, may we walk away from these first 11 chapters like ones who have just walked away from the ocean in awe of the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. But we know that his ways are good. His ways are right. His ways are wise. His ways are just. And his ways are merciful. And he has made a way for us to not just walk away in awe of him, But may we walk away humbly secure in Christ that one day we are always going to live at the ocean beholding the glory of God. 
You see, when I go to the ocean, after a trip where I go to the ocean, which, by the way, I love going to the ocean, all right? When I go to the ocean, I walk away from the ocean, yes, in awe of the God who created this bigness and vastness and this wide thing called the ocean. But the only way someone can really pull me away from the ocean is that I believe one day I'm coming back. (laughs) I'm going to see it again. And the Lord, if the Lord would be gracious one day, I'm going to live here. I'm going to dwell here and just take this in all the time. And so as we walk away from Romans 1 through 11, yes, be in awe of God. That needs to be our first, making sure we are walking away in awe of God. But we also need to walk away from Romans 1 through 11 with a humble security, knowing that one day, we are going to forever live with and dwell with and behold the glory of our God. What we get a glimpse of here, we will one day live in that glory. And we don't get prideful about that. It's not a prideful security. It's a humble security, for we are like Mephibosheth. I mean, I have a difficult time believing Mephibosheth ever got arrogant or prideful walking around like he owned the place. Yes, he had been accepted to eat at the king's table, but he was accepted on account of the love David had for Jonathan. And so, too, we have been called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and one day we will be glorified And we will forever live in the presence of the glory of God forever, eating at the king's table because of the Father's love for the Son. And the Father's love and commitment to the Son is eternal and secure. I have been created by him. I have been redeemed by him and for him. And I am being sustained through him. And church, we are now in him. We are in Christ. My joy and our joy will increase the more glory we give to him. And therefore, may all that he ordains in our lives and all that he allows in our lives serve to bring him glory, both now and forever. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray.